Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 393, To Kill a Legend. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Ulrich, Eli, and Joe for signing up already. Here's how you've probably heard the story of the Battle of Hastings. William the Conqueror boarded a ship, he won at the Battle of Hastings, and he was crowned king. Kingdom, conqueror, conquered. It's a tidy story that wraps up after an exciting action scene. But now you know that the first part of that story wasn't tidy at all. We know that there were papal politics, horse for days, shipwrecks, corpse magic, mid-battle horsejacking, sexual mutilation, and some guy juggling a sword for some reason. And by now, you're also starting to get the hint that, well, that second part of the story wasn't very tidy either. For example, you know that the English managed to herd the French cavalry into a nightmare of spiked booby traps. And we also know about Earl Waltheoff throwing a Norman barbecue in the wield. Because the truth is that the Battle of Hastings wasn't the beginning, nor was it the end. William had the English tiger by the tail. And so if he made one misstep, well... And if you think back to that gigantic Battle of Hastings episode, you might recall that the full military might of England never actually made it to Hastings. Meaning that there were still a lot of fighters out there. And there were also leaders. Leaders like Waltheon. And there was also the English fleet. Remember them? Yeah, there's no record of any sort of naval engagement or destruction of those ships, which means that the blockade that had corked William up on Hastings and set him into a complete all-night frenzy where he even commanded his bishops to literally put relics on his body for good luck? Well, those ships and the threat that they posed still remained. And so the biggest threat to William right now was if the English found a way to rally. Now, of course, to do that, they would need something or someone to rally around. And King Harold was dead. His brother, Tostig, was also dead and buried at York, though he wouldn't have exactly been a great choice, so that was probably fine. Harold's next two brothers probably really would have been a good choice, But Gerth and Leofwina were both killed at Hastings. Harold's only nephew, Hakon Swainson, had also died at Hastings. And the king's uncle, Abbot Aelfwig of Newminster, had also been killed at Hastings as well. And that pretty much just left poor Wolfnoth, the last living male Godwinson. But thanks to that hostage situation that started all the way back with Edward the Confessor, well he was now a prisoner held by Duke William the Bastard. And as for the women of the Godwinson dynasty, well, Elf Gifu, the king's sister, was dead. His living sisters, the Dowager Queen Edith and the nun Gunhild, were both childless, which meant there were no male heirs available there. 
The king's mom, Githa, still lived, but after all the killing of the last month, she was nearly as childless as her daughters. And so, this once enormous Godwinson dynasty was on the verge of complete annihilation. And of the members who remained free and living, there were none that had the requisite genitalia necessary for the nobility of England to proclaim them king. And so, in the aftermath of the Battle of Hastings, the person with the strongest claim in England was probably little Edgar Atheling. But Edgar Atheling was about 14 years old. He'd been raised in Hungary, and his claim to the throne was just that he was the grandson of Edmund Ironside, which, let's be honest, is a pretty distant link. However, he was a member of the House of Wessex, and in the chaotic aftermath of the Battle of Hastings, a Hungarian teen who was related to Athelred f***ing Unred was still probably their best bet. Which is grim. And so, it's really not surprising that before night had even closed in on Hastings, with everything covered in the thick blanket of the approaching storm, King Harold Godwinson had begun to pass from man to myth. Because the English really did need something to rally around. And I'm guessing that a legend may have been one of the best options they had. And this king of England, for as short as his reign was, had actually cast an enormous shadow. He was such a formidable figure in English politics that he had managed to wrest the throne of England from the line of the House of Wessex. His military feats border on impossible. Even now, nearly a thousand years later, there are historians who stare in disbelief at what contemporary records report about this guy. Truthfully, Harold's rise to power in his defense of the throne is nothing short of legendary. And so as the remnants of his army escaped into the darkness, King Harold Godwinson, the man, was gone. But he was being replaced by King Harold Godwinson, the legend. And that was a very dangerous development for the Normans. Even in the absence of a charismatic leader, the legend of a fallen king who had been martyred heroically in battle could be enough to sustain a renewed resistance to their colonization. But how do you fight a legend? Well, you try to erase them. And that's what Duke William immediately set about doing. Scrubbing any version of Harold Godwinson that didn't suit his own goal of domination and conquest. And this counter-propaganda campaign was a war that he found himself waging for years. William needed everyone. The British the French, the holy men, everyone, to not see Harold as a king who had merely been defeated in battle. No, he needed them to see Harold as a rebel vassal of the true king, William, and as such, as a failed usurper and an enemy of God. And that was if he even merited being mentioned. And if William had his druthers, people probably wouldn't. And this is actually one of the reasons why our understanding of this period is so poor. As we've discussed in earlier episodes and in the members feed, we don't actually know how King Harold died. In fact, we aren't sure about a lot of what goes on regarding King Harold Godwinson during those last crucial few days, and also in the immediate aftermath. And that's not an accident. It's quite clear from the surviving contemporary Norman accounts that what little we do know of what happened here 
doesn't make the Normans look good. And we also know that William and his scribes were really trying to scrub the record. And that hole in the record is evidence of this counter-propaganda campaign. But there's also evidence that they set about trying to revise the story in a more Norman-favorable light. Because of course they did. This looked bad. But here's the trick with lying. You've got to have a really good memory. And you also have to make sure that everyone stays on message. And going by the quality of these records, the Normans hadn't figured those two rules out yet. And what follows here is a small story. It's a story about something that by itself has very little material impact. But by following it, we can see the first cultural and political moves of the Norman colonization project. And so it becomes extremely important. And it's a story about King Harold, or to be specific, about King Harold's corpse. Just like the matter of how King Harold died, there's quite a lot of confusion about what happened to his body after the Battle of Hastings. And the tale of that body, like many tales from this period, begins with our earliest surviving record, the Carmen de Hastinge Prolio. And as you know, it's a Norman record, because if there were any contemporary English records talking about this, they didn't survive, which I'm sure is a complete coincidence. But the Carmen tells us that after the fighting, William ordered for the dead French and Norman soldiers to be given Christian burials. But he also ordered that the English dead must remain where they lay to be eaten by worms, wolves, birds, and dogs. Now, William is known for being a vindictive little prick, especially with anyone who challenged his authority. But in the context of his own time, what he was doing with the English bodies was actually really bad, like really bad. Culturally, it probably would have been better if William allowed the soldiers to be buried and then just went around personally shitting on every grave. Because depending on how one interprets Christianity, William very well may have been interfering with the English soldiers' chances of getting into heaven. And that's just a start. Given what we can find of folklore during this period, this treatment of the dead could well open the door to unleashing a horde of ghosts and vampires. Do you remember Walter Mapp's courtly trifles? Some of those ghost stories focused around a failure to provide a proper Christian burial. So William's order to neglect the English dead was petty, it was cruel, and it had the potential of supernatural effects for both the living and the dead. It would have been a horrifying choice to all who heard or witnessed it. Now, of course, Poitiers tries to clean this up a bit. And he basically states that if any of the English wanted to collect their dead, William would have allowed it. Which, think about that for a second. The French were led by a man who believed that every Englishman at Hastings was a traitor, both to the crown, which he already thought was his, and also to God. And at this very moment, the countryside was teeming with the same violent knights who had just occupied themselves over the last few weeks by exterminating entire villages, and who had just spent the last night executing the sick and wounded. But apparently, Hilda should have assumed that she had safe passage to go collect her son's body. And so if she didn't do that, that's really on her. Cool, man. Real cool. 
Regardless of what Poitiers says, the English dead could not and would not be collected. And there's no record of even the nobility being given passage to collect their family members, as no record exists of the body of Gerth, Leofwina, or Hakon Swainson being reclaimed and being given a proper burial. None. And that brings us back to the body of King Harold Godwinson, a complicated little tale that's central to how Harold was passing into legend, and also how the Normans were trying to stamp out that legend before it grew. Because the Carmen goes on to tell us that William ordered the mutilated body of Harold to be reassembled, which is gross, and then wrapped in purple linen and brought to his camp at Hastings. Harold's mother, Githa, pleaded with William to return her son's body, and the Norman duke refused. Githa then offered to pay William, promising to give him her son's weight in gold just to get her child's body back. And again, the bastard refused. Instead, he gave the body to a man in his company, and this man then buried Harold on a cliff overlooking the sea, inscribing in the stone, quote, You rest here, King Harold, by the order of the duke, so that you may still be guardian of the sea and the shore, end quote. Now, the Carmen claims that this man in William's company was an Anglo-Norman and Harold's relative. And Poitiers adds to that, giving him a name, William Mallet, Lord of Greville in Normandy. But there's no record of Mallet coming to England prior to the invasion. And looking at the lineages, there doesn't seem to be any familial relationship linking the two. So someone got something wrong there. But the identity of precisely who buried the body isn't really the point, so I'm going to move on. Because what this really is, is a heartbreaking story about heaping cruelty upon a woman who actually deserved pity and mercy, not more suffering. But it was a very William thing to do. It's callous, it's cruel, and it's just completely and utterly culturally inappropriate. By burying Harold in this manner... William wasn't just refusing to give a grieving mother the body of her son. He was also denying King Harold a Christian burial. Because the burial that's described is downright pagan. So William was f***ing over Harold in this life and the next. And he was also doing something that was, for the time, seen as pretty much downright evil. But remember, William did have the papal standard. And he did have a papal absolution coming. So he was good with God, and he could do whatever he wanted. And so, according to the Carmen, Harold was denied a Christian burial, and was instead plonked down on a cliff under some rocks. A cliff that no one identified, and as such, the English rebellion couldn't use as a rallying point. Now, Poitiers does his best to clean this public relations mess up. And he claims that Githa did ask for her son's body back, but she also offered to pay William for it. And so William refused because it was unseemly to be paid for the body of a king. Yeah, apparently this was Githa's fault. Maybe if she hadn't acted so desperate to save her son's soul, William would have spared them both this embarrassment and relented, but she just ruined it. Right. However, Poitiers was apparently unable to keep his own story straight because he adds that William didn't think that Harold should be given a proper burial because there were so many other Englishmen who remained unburied. So instead, 
William declared, quote, in jest, end quote, that the king should be left by the seashore that he had guarded so zealously. So yeah, William's own hype man admits that the Duke refused to give the English soldiers a proper burial and refused to hand over the body of Harold to his grieving mother. And he tells us that actually it was the fault of Githa and the English, and certainly not the Norman Duke, who was the one out there issuing orders and cracking jokes about it. So that's how our earliest records discuss this issue. And then generations later, William of Malmesbury gave us a different story. One that makes William look nicer. Though, to be honest, it would be difficult to make him look worse. And Malmesbury says that despite the contemporary Norman accounts, actually, William did give the body to his mother. And he did it gratis. No need for the payment, ma'am. You can have this one on me. Malmesbury also claims that Githa then buried Harold at his beloved church at Waltham. And obviously, this story is bullshit. No contemporary accounts suggest anything of the sort. Also, no Normans who actually knew William in life ever spoke about him in a way that suggested he was kind or worried about a mother's feelings or, you know, completely uninterested in money. The people who knew William were all like, oh no, he and his buddies mutilated the body, then kept it for themselves and told Harold's family what they could do with their tears. But that doesn't make for good fanfic. And so we have Malmesbury writing in the 12th century trying to fix it. But here's the crazy thing. About 50 years later, after the church in Waltham was reformed, this claim was repeated by Waltham, but with a twist. This new record claims that two canons of Waltham, Osgood Knopp and Athelrich Childemaster, accompanied Harold on his famous march to Hastings. And after the battle, they were the ones who persuaded William to hand over the corpse. But there was a problem. They didn't know which body was the king. So they sent for the king's wife, Edith, who came to Hastings and identified Harold's mangled corpse. And then they all together took his body back to Waltham and buried it there. So that story means that despite having generations to massage the story, the best that Waltham could come up with was a version that replaced Githa with some churchmen and then for good measure added in Harold's grieving widow doing a little CSI style body identification. And as you might have gathered, I think that this story is just as much bullshit as Malmesbury's version. And yet, this is still far from the worst account that we have of what happened to Harold's body. That honor goes to a 13th century document called the Vita Heraldi. And the author of the Vita does think it's silly to believe that Harold was buried at Waltham. And he tells us that Malmesbury was just spouting nonsense, which actually is a reasonable statement but it's also the last reasonable thing that the author had to say on the matter. Instead, what he provides is some of the craziest medieval fanfic I've seen in quite a while. So here's what I suggest we do. Press pause, hit the bong, and buckle up for some of the weirdest revisionism I've heard outside of that Vikings TV show. So according to the Heraldi, King Harold Godwinson was terribly wounded in battle and collapsed amongst the many dead who lay there at the battlefield. 
but despite his numerous deadly injuries, he wasn't dead. And when the Normans left the battlefield, a woman came upon Harold and discovered that he was still breathing. So she dragged him to a nearby hut. Realizing who this patient was, two common men from the village decided to carry his body in secret to the city of Winchester, where he was quickly brought into a cellar where he could evade detection by the Normans. And there, they treated his wounds. This treatment, we're told, was provided by a Saracen woman trained in the medical arts, which meant that she would have been basically providing state-of-the-art medicine at this point in England's history. So brilliant struck of luck for Harry. And for two years, Harold and his Saracen doctor remained in that cellar. Eventually, the true king regained his strength. And he decided that if he wanted to win back his kingdom, he'd need some help. So he climbed out of the cellar and went on tour. He secretly visited the Saxons and the Danes and begged for their support. But his words fell on deaf ears because they had already allied themselves with the Normans. So now, defeated and exiled, Harold chose to wander the continent as a religious pilgrim going from holy site to holy site until finally reaching Rome. And honestly, this part of the whole story is really boring. It's a standard set of tropes from this era, the kind of religious tract that you'd expect to read from someone who's serving a life sentence. Lots of stuff about the importance of focusing on the next life, the idea that all this suffering has to have a purpose, that God watches and judges everything. You know the deal. And so Harold's fight for England becomes instead a fight for his own soul. Many years later, with Harold's body weakened from his injuries, from his years as an exiled pilgrim, and also just from old age, he decides to return home to England. And upon his arrival, he takes a new name. Christian. Subtle choice, Harry. And for 10 years, he lived in a cave in Dover as a hermit. After that decade, he decided to try to live closer to society, and so he moved to the Welsh marches. But the atrocities that he'd inflicted upon the Welsh meant that Harold, I mean Christian, didn't find any friends there. He moved from place to place, but no matter where in Wales Harold went, whenever people figured out who he was, they kicked his ass. And actually, I kind of like this part of the story. But eventually, Christian Godwinson gave up and he moved to a secret dwelling near Chester. And there, he resolved to live the rest of his life as a hermit. And, not wanting to suffer any more ass-kickings, whenever he went out into public, he covered his face. Though, some people began to suspect who he was. And when pressed, he didn't want to lie, so he would only admit that he was at Hastings and that he was bound to King Harold. Eventually, on his deathbed, he demanded that his confessor promise to keep a secret and that he must keep it until after his death. The priest agreed. And Christian, the human punching bag, finally admitted that he was actually Harold Godwinson. So that's the take in the Vita Heraldi. And it's bonkers. But the author urges us to believe him because he claims that he heard this story from a hermit named Sabert, who claims to have been a servant of Harold's during his hermitage. Which means we're left with two choices. 
either this author is lying or he's the most gullible person ever. And actually, the account doesn't stop there. Because don't forget that the author was adamant that Malmesbury was wrong and Waltham didn't have Harold's body. And so he goes on to relate a story about the reign of King Henry II, the first of the Plantagenet kings. And the author tells us that during a royal court held at Woodstock, a man approached the abbot of Ghent, and he told him that Harold Godwinson wasn't buried at Waltham, which is an odd way to open up a conversation, if we're being honest. But he goes on to say that he should know because he was Harold's brother, Gerth Godwinson. And Gerth would have been about 140 years old at this point, you know, if he was living, which he wasn't because he was killed in battle. But let's imagine that he, like Harold, also secretly survived this battle. And in his case, he just happened to be basically Methuselah. Well, I find it hard to imagine that the oldest man in the world would have taken the time to travel to the court of William's great-grandson just to go and say, hey, you guys f***ed up that burial. But apparently, when 13th century monks write fanfic, they really go for it. And to be clear, no one considers the Vita Heraldi to be a factual account. Because it clearly isn't. It's completely nuts. But we still pay attention to it because it shows that there was a continuing development of the legend of Harold Godwinson. And what makes it an extra fascinating document is where it was kept. Waltham. And actually, it wasn't just kept at Waltham. It was penned there. So a lot of ink was being spilled just in the effort of saying, no, we seriously don't have his body, which is weird. And what's even more weird is that even in spite of this, this belief that Waltham held the king's body persisted for hundreds of years. In fact, in the late 1700s, a man claimed that he found Harold's tomb while he was doing renovations in his cellar because he happened to own a house that was next door to Waltham. But the house burned down soon thereafter and was completely demolished by 1770 with no trace of the alleged tomb surviving. So who knows what happened there, but I'm guessing that someone was telling tall tales. And our story continues, but now not in Waltham, because not everyone believed that Waltham held King Harold's corpse. In 1954, a stone coffin was discovered in Bosham. Now, the skeleton that it contained was badly damaged, and it was missing its skull and one of its femurs. And in 1996, one of the residents of Bosham claimed that the body it contained was that of King Harold Godwinson. Why? Dunno. I mean, Bosham was a family estate, but it was also about 60 miles away from Hastings, and there's no record of anyone lugging the king's body all that way. But this is kind of how it goes with the legends. People are always taking a swing at it. And this probably won't be the last time that we'll hear a claim that someone's found the body of Harold Godwinson. And right about now, I'm guessing that some of you are saying... What about Battle Abbey? Isn't he buried at Battle Abbey? It's like a whole abbey dedicated to Harold's death. And we're going to get to Battle Abbey when it's constructed because it's odd. But here's the funny thing about Battle Abbey. No one has ever claimed that it contains Harold's bones. Now, whether or not Battle Abbey actually is placed at the site of Harold's death is an open question. But what is uncontested is that when Battle Abbey was constructed, 
there was no effort to locate Harold's remains and inter them there. None. Possibly because if Harold was relocated to the Abbey, he would have finally been given a Christian burial. And William was just that much of an asshole. There's also a good chance that it was political. Because if he was buried there, then that would transform the Abbey from one proclaiming William's piety and turn it instead into the resting place for a martyred king. And finally, there's also the issue of logistics. They might not have known where the body was. They may have never found the body. We really don't know. So, that's the saga of Harold's corpse. So why tell it to you? Well, it's actually a really good opportunity to learn about how our record develops and how these legends change over time. The Carmen, which I started with, is our earliest record. And it's very clear that William refused to give Harold's body to Githa, even after being offered a literal king's ransom. It's also clear that William instead chose to give the fallen king a pagan burial, with all the repercussions that entailed. But now that we went through all these records one by one, you can see how that didn't sit well with later writers. And so it was revised time and time again, sometimes in extremely outlandish ways. And this whole saga tells us that there wasn't just a war for territory and battlefields. There was also a war for the mind, for the very concept of what was English and what wasn't, for who was at fault and who wasn't, for what was real and what wasn't. And William, by refusing to bury the English, was making a profound spiritual threat. And by refusing to surrender Harold's body, and not even identify where, if anywhere, he was buried, he was also denying the English a rallying point. In fact, the complete disappearance of all the Godwinsons who fought at Hastings meant that even if the English wanted to turn to Gerth or any of the others as a martyr, they'd have nowhere to go to focus their rage. So what the Normans were doing was cruel, certainly. But this cruelty was strategic. Just like his landing and the ravaging of the south and the extermination of the wounded, William and his army were on a conquest. And if they were to be successful, they would need to break the will of the people that they intended to colonize. And so they were denying them any psychological refuge. They were denying them even their legends. And doing something like this is a long process. And as I said, William would be waging this war for the mind for the rest of his life. But with the matter of Harold's body settled, probably on a cliff, William was now free to continue his conquest. And he had a score to settle. Not all his men made it to Hastings. As you might remember, there had been that unfortunate business up the coast at New Romney. That village had stood up for itself, and some of his men had died. Now, William probably wasn't all that fussed about a few dead men, but he also wasn't the sort of man to tolerate a challenge to his authority. William didn't like people who stood up for themselves, so he left Hastings under the command of one of his captains, and he rode out with some of his Norman knights to New Romney. And once there, according to his own panegyrist, Poitiers, William, quote, punished at his pleasure, end quote, the people of that unfortunate coastal town. Because in a conquest, 
there is no such thing as a justified defense of your home. To William, these were his subjects. This was his land. And that meant that the people of New Romney were insurgents. And so the town was butchered. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media. We have links in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. We'll find you acting on your best behavior. Turn your back on Mother 